This is a diet of Brussels. Uh, calling this one, hello, does anyone remember Brexit? Uh, we're going for a walk today. It's, uh, it's like a slightly rubbish Claire Balding without the wit or the charm. Um, going for a constitutional, it's part of being uh, working mainly at home uh, by the river, which also seems to be by the main road. So hopefully we'll get some nice countryside sounds but for the time being, you've got the A3. Brexit is the word that is literally on nobody's lips uh, because uh, of the coronavirus. Um, it's nothing quite like a global pandemic to uh, really underline how trivial uh, everything else might seem. And uh, certainly for a subject that was as pervasive and all-consuming, as Brexit over the last few years, you can see how quickly that can be shunted off the front pages, the middle pages, the back pages, until uh, no one really pays any attention to it at all. However, uh, I think it's useful for all of us to think a little bit about what that actually means uh, in practice. And I think it's also worth reviewing what we have seen in the last couple of weeks around the negotiations on the future partnership and where we are on the extension question. The talks, as far as they've gone, uh, have been relatively positive. Uh, the first round in Brussels a fortnight ago was... Uh, uh, constructive. Both sides uh, said lots of nice things about each other. There was no snippy briefing uh, uh, behind closed doors. Instead it was trying to make things move on. And you really saw that I think underlined by the publication, well not really publication but the leaking of a publication of a draft text from the Commission which ran to uh, over 400 pages which uh, suggests that a lot of work had already been done on the EU side. The UK have apparently also got a similar kind of draft, which hasn't yet been leaked, although I wouldn't give it much more time. Um, so both sides look as though they have done uh, their homework and they're trying to make that uh, original timetable of December move on. And I think for me one of the striking things was not so much the abundance of text that already uh, was being thrown around, but also the general uh, effort to try and make this move along. We haven't seen uh, aggressive briefings uh, on the UK side or the European side, uh, firm reminders about the uh, inflexibility on red lines and uh, priorities and timetables, but really quite uh, uh, a lot less politicised uh, uh, situation around the debate than there was, say, for the start of the Article 50 negotiations back in 2017. Now, clearly, it's a different kind of situation. Uh, the UK is no longer a member state, so that fundamental point is secured, uh, as far as the UK is concerned. But uh, it still highlights the degree to which uh, things are uh, trying to be worked out uh, by the two negotiation teams. 
But having said that, it's clear that there are still very fundamental differences. And we talked a bit about those in previous episodes. And to be honest, we haven't really seen any substantial movement on those. The UK still talks about the Court of Justice having no role in uh, this new agreement, which is uh, untenable for the EU. Uh, We have the discussions about the level playing fields, which are, I think, potentially uh, to be accommodated, but still uh, not entirely clear quite how we do that. The UK uh, doesn't want to be following EU rules, but uh, it seems potentially to be open to saying they will have their own rules that happen to uh, achieve the same kind of standards as the EU. And as uh, seen several commentators uh, discuss in recent weeks, it's not so much about the rules, it's about who owns the rules and the, uh, the formalism of it. Uh, the question of how that relates to the substance, I think, is a slightly different matter because, yes, the UK might have its own rules, but if it's bound to keep the same kind of level of standards, in practice, uh, it is uh, still following the EU's rules, as uh, will happen more explicitly by those who want to uh, export to the EU itself, which is a very large part of the UK economy. But symbols matter, and really that takes us to the the main issue now uh, around coronavirus, which is what is the impact of this uh, global uh, situation on the timeline. Up until last week, uh, I would have told you, and I did tell you, those of you who follow me on Twitter, that an extension wasn't going to happen. Yes, you could make the argument, it looked quite potential that it would happen, but it didn't look as though it was definitely going to be the case. The UK has put a lot of emphasis on the end of 2020 as the uh, necessary point at which transition ends and the new relationship starts. With all the difficulties that we've talked about in previous uh, uh, episodes. But in that past week, things have changed so fundamentally, just as they have in every other walk of life. If you think about all the lockdowns that are going on, the restrictions on movement, on uh, social distancing, uh, the huge public uh, mobilisation of finances to uh, deal with what is a simultaneously a supply side and a demand side uh, shock to the economy, we are not where we were seven days ago. And so now here at this point, uh, you have to say that an extension looks pretty much like it is going to happen. Uh, We saw some stories coming out uh, last night, so that would be uh, Tuesday uh, evening, suggesting that the principle of extension was basically conceded by the UK, but now it was thinking about the optics uh, of it. It's worth just thinking a little bit about why that might be. Um, the timeline was already super, super tight. It was going to be a real problem. Uh, and remember that this timeline isn't just about negotiating uh, a text. It's also about putting in place implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has to happen in any case uh, at the end of the transition period. 
Uh, it's about building infrastructure, recruiting personnel, things which were just really uh, improbably uh, large uh, for the time that was left. And that was assuming a, a benign uh, or at least unproblematic uh, environment in which that happens. So now we have a situation where you've got fast diversion of resources in terms of money, in terms of manpower, to a new public health uh, crisis, in essence. So uh, if we take Michael Gove uh, as a good example of this, uh, he is the UK chair of the joint committee that the uh, transition agreement uh, is managed uh, under. Uh, he is now also the point person for government efforts to manage uh, coronavirus. So he has two very large jobs, which would be a full-time job each by themselves, quite aside from his other duties uh, as a minister. We have the same for uh, permanent undersecretaries, uh, who are now also been taken off Brexit duties and put on uh, COVID-19 uh, activities and management. Um, so we don't have senior personnel, we don't have junior personnel uh, who are doing uh, the job that they were doing uh, up until very recently. We also then have a problem about mobilisation of resources for all of the implementation that I've just mentioned vast numbers of new personnel required for border controls, customs checks and all the rest. That really uh, hadn't been moving before but now looks even more uh, unlikely to be moving at any kind of speed. And just the political bandwidth is not there as well. Uh, the UK uh, is not pushing forward on uh, the political uh, decisions that needs to to make everything happen in time. Uh, we haven't yet got to a disruption of Parliament's uh, business, but uh, that is not uh, unlikely in the near future. As we've seen with the budget, uh, Labour have just uh, decided to nod through some big pieces of legislation, but not uh, enough to say uh, yet that they would nod through all the uh, various bills that are going through Parliament, some still to be introduced in fact, that need to be in place by the end of transition. So for all these reasons, hitting uh, December was already very difficult and COVID-19 doesn't so much uh, tip it over the edge as give it a very firm shove uh, with an extra kick just to make sure. So. At this moment in time, I think what we're looking at is now a discussion about how do you uh, extend in a way that is flexible and proportionate. And this is a big uncertainty that we don't know how long disruption uh, will last. How do you measure that? And the relative inflexibility of the extension provisions in uh, the withdrawal agreement now come to be a problem. Uh, Remember that the withdrawal agreement allows for one extension of up to two years um, to be agreed by both parties. Now, it may be that you can agree that you have an extension of up to two years, but with the reserve that the joint committee jointly agrees how much extra time actually is needed uh, in that particular case. Um, there are ways of doing it, but it's a bit awkward and again, 
uh, whilst we're not looking at a two-year uh, disruption, please, uh, it's still easy to imagine how you might end up with an argument that you need to uh, put in place an option for using the full two years just in case, given what we uh, already know about this uh, virus and the potential for subsequent waves to ripple through the population. The big problem is that once you've used that extension mechanism, you don't have an easy way of uh, adding to it. Yes, you could go back and you could do some kind of modification of the treaty uh, agreed by the parties, but that would be relatively procedurally difficult. And I think even for the UK in this situation, uh, it would find it hard to uh, defend that position and to add something that looks more like a an endless option in the manner that we had with uh, Article 50, with all the uh, critique that came with that. Taken together, then, I think we can see how this is likely to be a running issue. Uh, it's very little public attention on uh, Brexit right now in the UK. Yes, we still have uh, parliamentary hearings from the uh, select committees, we have the occasional uh, story that bubbles under, but really no scrutiny that's going on. What's odd, uh, and I say odd because this was largely the strategy of the government was to kind of uh, take it away from public eye, was that the government is also not doing very much uh, right now because it's got something else much bigger on its plate. So we're back quite a part of the river. Uh, hopefully you can hear some bird song. Uh, you probably can't smell the sewage works at just the other side of the river, I notice. Uh, that's probably a problem for me rather than for you. All of this really fits into a question of what Brexit is about. Um, the lack of a clear project is something I've talked about a lot over the past couple of uh, years and really is something that remains uh, a problem. That We've talked quite a lot about how the absence of a purpose to Brexit hampered negotiations during Article 50 and we still see that again. You know, what is it that we're trying to achieve here? The issue uh, really remains that despite uh, a government that now seems to have adopted the position of let's not do anything with the EU unless we absolutely have to, is one which I think uh, is tested quite severely by this crisis, that the uh, obvious incentives to cooperate internationally, globally, regionally with uh, other countries and partners in terms of sharing resource, expertise, insight, uh, policy, all of those things really rub up very strongly against uh, the way that the government is trying to do things. And I think as we find ourselves drifting uh, through this period without uh, concrete action, there is a danger for the government that they find that the implicit logics of their position come under more and more stress and duress. That this is not something to be faced alone, as much as we might be sitting at home 
self-isolating, it's about working together and thinking about each other. If you want to think about that in simple terms, the way that the uh, public policy response to uh, this epidemic uh, uh, proceeds is that yes, you have to look after yourself, but you also have to look after yourself because of other people. You might feel fine, you might have very few symptoms, but uh, you might pass it on to somebody who is less resilient. Uh, and in so doing, you contribute to the problems of managing that within hospitals. So, if we translate that into this Brexit context, Yes, what we do matters, but what we do with other people, with other countries, with other organisations, also matters and is consequential. Right now, it's hard to see how this all plays out uh, with any certainty. Uh, you have other things on your mind, just as we all do, thinking about our friends, our family, our neighbours, uh, those we care about those who uh, we share spaces with and it's really hard to think about something like Brexit. What I'd say though is that you know it's also easy just to obsess with how badly things are going and they will go very hard in the coming weeks and months but you might reflect about what this means for the rest of everything that still is there. Brexit's not going away, it's just been pushed to one side. But at some point it has to be picked up. And the point at which we can pick that up is a point at which we can potentially revisit the debate and the frames that we have. I'm almost at the end of my walk. I'm walking down a uh, supply road to the sewage works, which is oh so glamorous. And on that happy image, I will talk to you soon. I hope you keep safe, I hope you're practicing all of the recommendations that your bodies, uh, regulatory bodies and governments are telling you to do, uh, and uh, we will be back soon. Until then, goodbye.